If you would please be seated and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. That won't be our final destination for the morning, but it will be a good starting point. And as you turn there, let me uh, say just how much I appreciate Pastor Stephen's message from last week that addressed that oh-so-important issue of approval and how approval can become an idol. There's great danger in being controlled by and ruled by the favor of others, the applause of others, the likes of others. That is a clear and present danger uh, for all of us to be on guard against. If you weren't here last week, make sure you go online and you can watch or listen to that message. Uh, Let me also remind you that next week we're looking forward to starting our new study through the book of First Peter. First Peter is an important book that helps us live as followers of Christ in difficult and hostile territory. Peter describes us, as we'll see, he describes us as exiles, as strangers, as aliens, and yet he also describes us as those who have a firm and a living hope. He describes us as those who have wonderful good news to give and to offer to those in need, to those who are still in darkness. As we'll see in First Peter, we are in fact the most loved, the most supported, the most cared for, the most empowered exiles who have ever walked the face of, of the earth. And we ought to live in response to, we ought to live in proportion to the hope that we've been given. So we hope that, that you will join us for this wonderful study and journey through the book of First Peter. And we hope that maybe you'll bring someone along with you, someone who needs to be encouraged in Christ and to grow in their confidence and their hope in him. So that's that's next week. Now for this morning, for this morning again having last week looked at that issue of approval, this morning we want to think biblically and rightly about the growing levels of anger and outrage that just seem to permeate so much of our society and even our daily lives. How are we to live? How are we to think as Christ followers when anger and outrage just becomes an accepted way of life? And again, you see it everywhere. If you're, if you're on social media, you are aware of, of the anger and the outrage. If you turn on the news for more than two seconds, it is right there and it is in your face. I'm sure you've noticed non-believers, people outside the church are angry. We live in the midst of what has been termed cancel culture, where, where people believe that if something offends, uh, if something or someone makes a protected group, however you define that, if you make a protected group feel belittled or insecure or fearful in any way, then whoever it is who has done this must be canceled. They must be removed. They must be taken off of the shelf of relevancy and put away out of public view. So people outside the church, they are on edge. They are angry. They are feeding off of the cancel culture around us. And it's also true, many people inside the church are angry. 
Do you feel it? Have you, have you noticed it? Many of us are. And again, you could say, rightly so, but don't get ahead of my message. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. Many of us are, are shocked. Shocked at the levels of wickedness and outright insanity that just seems to be running like wildfire throughout our nation and our culture and the way we think. So again, how do we live well in such an angry, cancel culture society? How are we to deal with and evaluate our own feelings of anger? How do we address this in our lives so that we might actually walk through this life Seeking to do that which is most important. Seeking to do that which truly matters, which is to love God with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength and to love those that God has in His sovereignty and goodness placed around us. It is no accident that you are alive today at this point in time in human history, God has a design and a purpose in that for you. You are placed here and it is significant and you exist here now for his, his glory. So to begin, as we think about this, we want to turn our attention again. I hope you're in Luke chapter nine. We want to look at an often overlooked, neglected account in Luke's gospel. If you're in Luke chapter 9, join me in verse 51. Verse 51 begins like this. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So here's Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's traveling with his disciples and the time is drawing near. The time is drawing close when Jesus will be arrested and crucified and ultimately resurrected. But look again at the strange way. And it, it, it's so strange. I mean, we just gloss over. We don't even see it. We don't even take notice of the strange way that Luke describes Jesus's soon to be redemptive work. Look again at verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be Taken up. Hey, Luke, aren't you forgetting something? Like, taken up? Are, did you just gloss over the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus? How did you jump all the way to the ascension? Did you gloss over these things? No, Luke is not glossing over the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Luke is drawing our attention to where these things ultimately lead, to where these things are ultimately heading to the ultimate victory of Jesus, to Jesus's triumphant ascension back into heaven where Jesus would be seated at the right hand of the Father, where Jesus is acting even now as our faithful high priest, that he is even now praying for us, that he is pleading the merits of his atoning work on our behalf. So 
through this not-so-subtle comment, Luke is lifting our eyes to remind us of Jesus' position in glory. That Jesus sits and rules and reigns in power, in majesty for the good of his people, and he does so at this very moment. So number one on your outline, note it down, a right biblical understanding of anger, and I would say a right biblical understanding of anything must be set against the backdrop of Jesus' victory. Jesus wants us. Luke, here in this account, wants us to be mindful of Jesus' ascension, of Jesus' victory as we work through this text. So again, where is Jesus going here in Luke chapter 9? Well, he says he has set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will ultimately die. And nothing, nothing can stop him from going to the cross. Nothing can restrain his determination, his passion to accomplish the Father's will. Nothing can prevent the Savior from offering himself as the final perfect payment for sin, which is why you need him as your Savior. If he is not your Savior, this is the Savior you need because he is the only perfect payment, complete payment for your sin. There is no other option. There is no other game in town. But the point is, nothing can cancel Jesus' coming victory. Nothing can cancel his victory over sin and death. Nothing can delay his ultimate ascension back into glory. Now, again, you may be thinking, okay, that's fine. Again, what does any of this have to do with anger? What does any of this have to do with our attitude and our words and our actions as we walk through this life? Everything. Everything, as we'll see throughout our time together. Jesus' victory, his resurrection, his ascension does have, should have a direct impact, believe it or not, on what angers you. It should. should have a direct impact on how you manage and how you respond to your anger and on how you express yourself in this life. So there's Jesus traveling on his way to Jerusalem, knowing he is going to die, but also knowing that he's going to be resurrected. He is going to ascend back to the Father, and it will be glorious. With that in mind, look now at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So Jesus is very wise. He's traveling with a number of individuals. And so he sends messengers ahead of him who would make preparations for a place for him to stay. They would make preparations for food uh, to be eaten. And, and you know this. You, you don't just show up somewhere. You call ahead. You make reservations so that you know there's a place. You know that there's food. This is good. This is wise. And yes, admittedly, this is a potentially awkward situation. As you're well aware, there's a history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay, there, there, There's a history. Jews, generally speaking, don't like Samaritans. Samaritans, generally speaking, don't like Jews. They disagree on some of the most fundamental questions related to God and worship. The Jews say that you must worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans say that you must worship at their temple on Mount Gerizim. And so, yes, this is a potentially awkward situation, 
But this is Jesus we're talking about, right? I mean, surely the Samaritans would be welcoming towards Jesus. This is the same Jesus who spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well, who showed her such grace and kindness. This is the same Jesus who made a Samaritan the good guy in one of his most famous parables. In fact, we even call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, then yes, I realize Jesus doesn't tell that parable to Luke chapter 10, and we're in Luke 9, but still the point I'm making is this. Jesus loves Samaritans. Jesus, he's not prejudiced against Samaritans. Jesus is happy to be there and to travel through their village and to stay in in their town. I'm sure things will be just fine. Look at verse 53. But the people did not receive him. That's referring to Jesus. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the answer from the Samaritans to Jesus is this. You are not welcome here. You, Mr. Famous, well-known, miracle-working, on-your-way-to-Jerusalem rabbi, you can keep on walking. You can keep on going. We don't want you here. They say no to Jesus. They deny entrance to the Messiah. They told the Son of God to take a hike and don't come back. We don't want you here. This is shocking and it is wrong. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it. This is James and John, the sons of thunder. Rock'em, sock'em, James and John. Shoot first and ask questions later. James and John, when they saw it, when they saw the rejection of Jesus by these no good, lowly Samaritans, they said, quote, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, finally, someone with a sensible approach to this situation. I mean, these Samaritans, they don't want Jesus. Fine, we will cancel them with fire from heaven forever. So how does Jesus respond to this? Look at verse 55, verse 55. And Jesus said to James and John, yes, thank you. Go and light them up for me. No, no, it's not even, that's not even close to what the, look at verse 55 for real. But he turned and rebuked them. He, he rebuked James and John, verse 56, and they went on to another village. Now, This is kind of disappointing. I mean, that's it? Jesus doesn't even rebuke the Samaritans who have been so rude and wrong in rejecting him? He doesn't even leave them a negative Google review about their village? And instead, he rebukes James and John? What are we to make of this? Weren't James and John right to be angry and outraged and grieved by this rejection of Jesus? Well, in one sense, yes. 
James and John were right to be angry and grieved over this rejection of Jesus. But listen, in their rightness of being angered at this rejection, they took a very wrong turn in assuming for themselves a role and a responsibility that belongs only to God. Please note this on your outline. Number two, James and John failed to understand the timeliness. They failed to understand the relevancy and the centrality of Jesus's mission and God's grace. They failed to see what God was doing in that moment in redemptive history. Even after they had spent so much time with Jesus, they failed to grasp that Jesus was on a rescue mission He had not come to seek and destroy. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.17 says it this way, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Might be saved through Him. Now, listen, having said that, Okay, having just considered that, I know we're still just wading into this matter, but having said that, let me also hearken to say we, we want to be honest about this. We want to be truthful about this. We want to consider the, the big picture. It is absolutely true. Absolutely true that there is coming a final day of judgment. There is coming a day of wrath. A day when those who have persisted in their sin... A day when those who defiantly choose to walk in idolatry and rebellion against the one true God, when those who have refused to repent, when those who have refused to surrender to God, when those who have refused to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, there is coming a day when they will be judged in righteousness according to God's perfect knowledge and His perfect holiness. That day is coming. And when the Apostle Paul was in Athens proclaiming Christ and making known the gospel, he explained it this way in Acts 17 verse 30. He said the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that day is coming. A day of wrath, a day of judgment, a day of perfect righteousness for all those who refuse to find safety and refuge in Christ. But here in Luke chapter 9, and here today on January 30th, 2022, Today is a day of mercy. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day when the free offer of the gospel is extended to all. This is a glorious day to be alive. It was a glorious day to be alive in Luke chapter 9. And it's a glorious day to be alive today. And if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? 
There is no better day than today to call upon the name of the Lord that you may be saved. Even now at this moment, tune me out, right? You don't have to listen anymore. Talk to God and ask Him to save you and to cleanse you and to forgive you based upon what Jesus has done for you in your place. The Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What stops you from calling on the name of the Lord? He is able and He is willing to save any and all who come to Him. So trust in Him today. Today is a day of grace. Now, going back to Luke chapter 9 and our friends James and John, it seems evident, seems evident that James and John were angry. They wanted to call down fire from heaven because they saw the Samaritans as enemies to be destroyed instead of as captives who needed to be set free. James and John, and I dare say, like so many of us, they were too fleshly in their seeing. They were too fleshly in their thinking. They failed to see past the Samaritans' rejection to their true spiritual need. They failed to recognize how the grace of God was at work right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only that, number three, note this on your outline, James and John, in this moment, I think, failed to grasp their own sinfulness and their own need of grace. They failed to see this. And brothers and sisters, when we, when we are harsh and angry, when we are quick to elevate ourselves, when we are quick to express our desire for others' destruction, it can be a very good indication that we've lost sight of our own sinfulness, that we've lost sight of our own continual need for God's mercy and grace. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was warning and talking about the dangers of sinful anger, He connected anger to feelings of superiority. He connected anger to a harsh spirit that is eager to elevate self and condemn others. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Brothers and sisters, when we are angry, we feel very free. But it's a bad freedom that we feel. It is a wrong kind of freedom. We feel very free when we are angry. We feel very justified to lash out, to insult, to pronounce words of judgment like, you fool. And we, we unwittingly place ourselves in a very dangerous position. We unwittingly put ourselves in the place of God when we act and we speak as though we 
perfect knowledge over a situation, as though we can see into another person's heart and righteously judge their attitudes and their motives and so pronounce them fool according to our understanding and our standards. And this is a problem with us. If I can say it this way, this is not a Samaritan problem, this is an us problem. And yet, we're so often not even aware of this. I'm sure James and John, in this moment, were not even aware of what they were doing and the position that they were assuming for themselves. I'm sure that James and John would have gladly defended themselves, saying, Well, if the Samaritans hadn't had made us so angry, then we wouldn't have had to call down fire from heaven to consume them. Right? We love to talk this way. We love to think this way. I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you make me so angry. I'm sorry that I'm grumpy and miserable to be around all the time, but the government, our political leaders, they make me so angry, so I lash out. You know, I'm so sorry that I say horrible things in person and on social media. But my wife, my husband, my kids, my dog, my boss, my taxes, my health, my car, they make me so angry. They are to blame. We're good at that sort of thing. And sadly, it's very reminiscent of what Adam said to God. After he had sinned and had eaten from the forbidden tree, God, Adam said to God in Genesis 3.12, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It is always someone else's fault. Our sin, our rebellion, our anger, the problem is always out there. Which is really interesting because Jesus taught us the opposite. Jesus said the opposite. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of you in those moments, that is what defiles you. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things and so many of the things that Jesus describes here is the fruit of anger, the result of anger. Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So brothers and sisters, what if there's a better way? And, and there is. There, there is a better way. What, what if instead of us blaming our sinful anger on our spouse, our kids, our work, our health, our friends, our dog, whatever, what if we saw these things, listen, for what they are? Instruments, tools in God's sovereign hand to show us what's really happening in our hearts, to show us how much we need Him, to show us something of our sinfulness so that we will actually know where growth is needed, so that we will see where repentance is needed, so that we will gladly recognize where we need to grow and to look more like Jesus. Listen, the things that make you so angry... Could it be 
that God is just pulling back a little something of the curtain of your own heart to show you what is still present in you that needs to be dealt with and submitted to Christ and conformed to His image and likeness. Now, if you're still with me in Luke chapter 9, please turn over to the book of James, which our brother Rob read earlier. James has some important wisdom for us to consider as we think about both the dangers of our inward anger and then the outworking of that anger as we tempted to give expression to our anger and we are tempted to speak in this way what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and what James writes here in James 1 is so closely aligned. They complement one another so well. First, if you're in James 1, look again at verse 19. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person... Stop there for just a moment. Every person. So, I'm going to go out on a limb say this applies to you this applies to me let every person no one is exempt from what follows here let every person be what be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger why for the anger of moms does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of dads does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of young people does not produce the right... For the anger of old people does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of Republicans and Democrats and Independents does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of Chris Fritz... Ask my wife, ask my kids, ask my dog, for the anger of Chris Fritz does not produce the righteousness of God. They can testify to my foolishness. Insert your own name, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we're going to come back to this issue of the righteousness of God in just a moment, but read a little bit further with me, okay? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore... For because this is true, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. Receive with humility. Don't receive it with anger. Don't receive it with defiance. Don't receive it with a haughty spirit, but receive it with meekness. What? The implanted word which is able to save your souls, receive the word of God. Let it have its effect on you. Let it read you. Let it discern you. Let it uncover you and the thoughts and the intentions and the, and the motives of your heart. Allow the word of God, not your anger, to shape your thinking and to make you more like Christ. Now, why is this so important? Because as James writes, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is to say, left to ourselves, left to our fallenness, Without God's word, without God's spirit working in us and through us, our anger does not lead 
to God's righteousness. Our anger does not in our sinfulness, it does not naturally lead to what is good and right and acceptable in the, in the, in the, in the sight of God. It just, it doesn't lead there. Now, up to this point, there's a topic that I have purposefully avoided. I, I haven't addressed and it's been purposeful. We haven't talked about And some of you may be thinking like, well, when are we going to talk about this? When are we going to get there? Well, we're going to get there now. And, and right now, we haven't talked about, we haven't addressed the issue of righteous anger. Righteous indignation. Thus far, we have been speaking of anger in mostly negative terms. Uh, terms. But you might be thinking, well, isn't there a kind of anger that is good? that is appropriate, that is righteous? Isn't there a kind of anger that was demonstrated by Christ while he was here on earth? And of course, the answer is yes. Yes, please note this on your outline. Number four, not all anger is sinful. In fact, the only reason why we experience anger to begin with is because we are created. We are made in the image of God. And it is true that while Jesus was on earth, there were at least several occasions on which Jesus was angry and he was indignant with various people and situations. For example, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was angry and he was grieved at the hardness of heart that he saw in the religious leaders who valued their rules and who valued their self-righteous standing before others more than they valued people. In this instance, it was a man with a withered hand. They didn't care about man with a withered hand. They didn't care about the hardships of his life and what was happening in his life. They didn't care about the fact that Jesus could, in that moment, miraculously heal him. They didn't care about any of that. And Jesus saw that hardness of heart, that indifference towards People made in his image and it angered him. He was indignant. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus was angry. He was indignant with his own disciples who dared to rebuke and chastise a group of parents and young children who wanted to see Jesus. And they said, no, just like the Samaritans, keep walking. You're not welcome here. Jesus wasn't about to stand for that. He publicly corrected the disciples and welcomed the little children to come unto him. In Matthew chapter 21, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as you well know, Jesus cleansed the temple. He kicked people out of the temple, people who were cheating other people and making money uh, at the sacrifices that were to be offered. He knocked over their tables and he... the text says he knocked over their chairs so they wouldn't have any place to sit. He drove them out and he told them, quote, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And this angered and it grieved the heart of Christ. And then for 36 straight verses in Matthew 23, Jesus fiercely confronted and challenged the Pharisees of his day. And yes, he used strong language. He called 
called them hypocrites, blind guides, dirty, unclean tombs, and hell-bound snakes and vipers. There was clearly righteous anger and indignation present in the life and ministry of Christ. It is a part of God's holy character and nature to hate sin. To hate sin. To be angry with sin. It is an overflow of His holiness. In Psalm 711, we read, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And again, because we are made in His image, because God has created us and gifted us with a mind and with a conscience, it is appropriate at times that we would experience anger because we know, brothers and sisters, we, we know, especially we who have been, who believe the Word of God and who have been entrusted with the Spirit of God to reside in us, we look at things and we know that they are not right. We know that they are not as they should be. In fact, if you don't ever experience anger, we would not think that commendable of you. We would think that something is wrong with you. What would you think of someone who says, for example, I'm good with child abuse. It doesn't, it doesn't make me angry. Murder is fine. It doesn't make me angry. Taking advantage of someone in their time of need and cheating them out of what they need to live on? That's cool. I'm fine with that. You, you wouldn't look at that individual and say, man, what a nice person they are. I just, you know, nothing makes them angry. That's so wonderful. You wouldn't say that. You would say, I'm really concerned. I, I think they're psycho. I think they need some help. And you would be right. Brothers and sisters, the things that angered Christ should anger us. The things that grieved the heart of God and that continue to grieve the heart of God should grieve our hearts as well. Rob already made mention of it earlier, but this is why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul does not condemn all anger, but he warns us that in our anger, we must be on guard against sin and temptation. Hear me again. Paul does not condemn all anger, but he warns us that in our anger, we must be especially on guard against sin and temptation. In Ephesians 4.26, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So yes, be watchful. Stay on guard. Yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but beware of meditating on angry thoughts throughout the night. That's, that's, that's what the text means, but it's talking about don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't stew and brew on these angry thoughts. Beware of allowing the sun to go down on your anger. Beware, says Paul, of giving the devil an opportunity in your life through your anger to cultivate things like bitterness, thoughts of revenge and slander and rage. So again, yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. It does exist. But if I'm going to be honest with you here this morning, and if we're going to be honest with, with one another, most of my anger that I experience 
cannot be described as righteous anger. Most of the things that excite me and make me angry, sadly, are not related to a love for holiness, a love for the gospel, or zeal for the glory of God. Mostly, I get angry, and perhaps you can relate, I get angry because my comfort has been disturbed momentarily. My plans have been derailed. My pride has been threatened or wounded. My pleasure has been bumped and disrupted and put on hold. And so I am angry. I am angry because my will should be done on earth as it is in my imagination. I am angry and I will fight. I will slander. I will argue. I will kick and scream to restore my comfort, my plans, my pride and my pleasure. For James and John, going back to Luke chapter 9, it seems, it seems to me that they could see the Samaritans. It seems to me that they could feel the sting of the disrespect. They could feel the sting of the rejection. It seems that they could loathe the inconvenience of having to walk farther and go on to another village to spend the night in, but they lost sight of what was most important. For all their seeing and their feeling and their loathing, they lost sight of what the Samaritans actually were. They lost sight, brothers and sisters, they lost sight of God's presence among them in that moment. They lost sight of the work of God and the plan of God and the grace of God that was evident right there amongst them. And that's why they got rebuked by Jesus. Because while seen, they didn't really have eyes to see. They didn't really understand what God was doing in that moment. And so if you're still in James chapter 1, join me in one more place. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we will end here this morning. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks to us about how and why we can and we should view people in a certain way. And listen, I'm talking about the very same people that we are tempted to be angry with on a daily basis. We're talking about the very same people that we may be tempted to ask God to send fire from heaven to consume. The very same people that we are tempted to blast or to troll online. And yet, what a different picture we see here in 2 Corinthians that Paul paints for us. If you're in 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 14. I love how this begins. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, stop there for a moment. What a, what a glorious thought that is, right? Now, whatever that means, I'm for that. I, I want that. And you do too. We, we want this to be true of us. For the love of Christ controls us. That word controls mean it urges us, it compels us, it directs us, it motivates us. Why? Read on. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We know this to be true, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live. Stop there for a moment. If you are alive in Christ, 
You're in this group. You're the those that Paul is referring to. This is about you. This is for you. This is to you that those who live, those who are alive in Christ might do what? Might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Please note this on your outline. Number five, it is the love of Christ This is the power and glory of the gospel that puts everything into proper perspective, including our anger. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, we see Paul explaining first and foremost the transformative power of the gospel because Jesus is who he is, because Jesus died for us to take away our sin, because Jesus rose for us that we may have life in him, being justified and made righteous before God and adopted into his family because all this is true. We no longer live for ourselves, says Paul. We live for him, motivated by him. We are no longer driven by our own agenda for our lives, but we look to see what God would want to do in us and through us for his glory. We no longer have to be dominated by sinful fear and angry. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us motivates us, empowers us. And brothers and sisters, this does have a profound impact on the way we view people, on the way we view one another. Uh, This changes everything. Look at the very next verse in verse 16. Paul writes, from now on, therefore, okay, because of all that is true, from now on, therefore, we do what? We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, just like, listen, just like we don't look at Jesus and say, whatever, he's just another person. He's just another bag of blood and bones and organs and muscle walking around. I don't see anything special there. No, of of course we don't say that. We don't think that about Christ. We don't regard Jesus according to the flesh. We don't think of him in that kind of fleshly and carnal way. Listen, Paul says in the same way, in the same way, we don't think of anyone in those kinds of cheap, throwaway terms. No, we see that each person we meet is made in the image of God, that each person we meet is not an outlet for us to express our anger. Each person that we meet is either alive in Christ, they are free in Christ, or they are a prisoner to sin and darkness and they are in desperate need of God's grace and the light of the gospel in their lives. And so because of Christ, because of his work in us and for us, Paul's whole point is this. We are set free now to love generously, to love compassionately, to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are empowered by Christ, yes, to speak truthfully, and we should and we must, but to also speak graciously in ways that are winsome and represent Christ. Yes, we can look at life honestly 
And we can be angered by sin. We can be grieved by sin. We can and should mourn and be angered by the presence and the effects of sin. And yet we live as those who have hope, knowing that Christ is where? He is ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father. He lives to to make intercession for us. His Spirit is alive and He is moving through His people. We know that one day God will make all things new. God will make all things right. And so, brothers and sisters, I know... This may this maybe was not the message that you were expecting as it relates to anger and how you should conduct yourselves on on, on, on social media. Listen, I, I plead with you. I plead with you to think long and hard about the truths and the principles that we have uncovered here this morning and to them live according to those principles and to write and to type and to think according to these kinds of, of glorious truths. Now, in just a moment... I want to pray for us again, but I also want to make this invitation. Man, if sinful, if you think that sinful anger has just gained a foothold in your life, or if you are just feeling defeated in life in some way and you need to be encouraged, it would be our joy to pray for you today to pray with you today. I know Rob mentioned he'll be down front praying. Please come. It would be our our, our privilege to help encourage you in these things because we, as a church family, we want to walk forward together, not as those who are dominated and controlled and influenced by the cancel culture that surrounds us. No, we want to be motivated and empowered and strengthened by Christ's love for us, by the love that we have received, by the calling that we have received to now be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it is a a glorious thing that you have done to save us, to, to love us in our sinful condition. Thank you for the work of grace that you have done. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and who victoriously conquered sin and death that we may have life, that you may be glorified. Lord, we pray that as a church family, as individuals, wherever we find ourselves, whether in person or online, Lord, may we represent you well. May we be angered and grieved by the things that anger you and grieve you. May we not be dominated and controlled by our anger, but may we then respond as Christ responded. May we leave vengeance and wrath to you, knowing that you will one day make all things right. And it is our glorious calling and responsibility to live and to speak as ambassadors for Christ. Lord, if there be anyone here today who doesn't know you, who is separated from you, distant from you, Lord, do your work to draw them to yourself that you would receive praise and glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.